one of the most valuable and insightful um, passages in the New Testament is found in John chapter 17, where Jesus' prayer, right before going to the cross, is recorded. And if you read John 17, you'll see that the entire chapter is read, and it's just someone was eavesdropping, listening in on Jesus' conversation with the Father, and just recorded word for word what he said. And if you ever want to gain insight uh, into what is valuable to someone, um, listen to their prayers. Because it's in that that you'll find um, what what truly burdens them, you know, as they unload and and pour out before God. And that's what Jesus did in John chapter 17. And uh, the majority of that prayer was him praying for us, which makes it all the more valuable because it helps us to understand what what it is that he wants and uh, what we can expect. Because when Jesus prays for something, that something happens. <laughs> you know? So uh, when you read that, you, f- you find out where we're going, you know, and it's a, it's a great insight. And uh, one of the things that Jesus prays in there that almost stings a little bit, it's in verse 15 of the chapter. He says, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. And so Jesus says, I don't want you, Father. My prayer is not that they would be removed, but that they would be preserved, so he wants us in the world. And then he, he, he actually follows that by telling us how we're going to be kept from the evil. Now, if I'm going to be in the world, I want to be kept from the evil, don't you? So he, he goes on to tell us how that's going to happen. He says, Father, sanctify them. That means insulate, separate, preserve, enclose them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so he prays that we would be preserved, but then he also lets us know how that's going to happen. And he says it's going to happen by the word of God. So incredible insight there. But, but he says we're going to be left in this world. Then a little bit further along in the prayer, he tells us why. Why wouldn't he just save us and take us out? Why would he pray that we'd be kept in the world? And he says, he goes on to say, I pray also for the others that will believe on you through their word. In other words, the reason why God left us in the world and didn't take us out when he saved us is because he has something for us to do that's going to result in other people coming to a saving knowledge of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God wants to use us, and therefore he left us in the world in order that he might do it. Now, another passage that helps us understand this is Matthew chapter 28, and you don't have to turn there, but it's a passage that we call the Great Commission. It's the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended to the Father. And he said to us, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, discipling them, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, I'm with you, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. And so he prays that we would be in the world. He says he has a purpose for us in the world. And then he gives us the commission that we're to go, therefore, and make disciples. And so now we come to Romans chapter 12 in our study. And in Romans chapter 12, what the Apostle Paul does is he helps us to understand how that works. Now that we're in the world and we've got a calling and a commission, a task, something that we're to do, How in the world do we fulfill this thing? How does it work out in us? 
And what he tells us is that primarily, and it's what we looked at in our last study together, we're to surrender absolutely our bodies and our minds to the possession and will of the Holy Spirit and his power and work in and through our lives. As we surrender our bodies, what we're doing is we're giving God a medium to dwell in, to work through us to fulfill the commission. So as the Spirit of God comes into our bodies, he begins to perform the work in and through us in order to fulfill the commission and the call that he's given. And so the Holy Spirit in us, and then the Holy Spirit working with us. As we surrender our mind, he changes us and makes us like Christ, and it's us and God working together to fulfill this great commission. Now, Paul doesn't end the chapter after verse 2, but he goes on in verses 3 through 8, the passage that we'll look at this morning, and he begins to describe how God uses us in our individual ways. Because God doesn't make Oompa Loompas. God doesn't make robots that he just programs and and just kind of goes out and we all do the same thing. God has individual graces and individual callings, individual ministries and offices that he gives to each one of us that work in tandem with our personalities and our desires and our talents. And then he uses us in individual ways and he shapes ministry out of every one of us. And so what Paul does in this next segment that we look at this morning is he describes how all of that works. How does God grace us and gift us and then use us according to his call for each one of us individually? And so we look, we pick up in verse 3 and notice what Paul says here. He says, for I say, through the grace given unto me. So notice that even Paul here, right at the beginning of this, he acknowledges The fact that even what he's writing to us is the byproduct of the gift that God had given him. He says, I'm not saying this from my own mind. I'm not saying this because I I needed something to think up. (laughs) But he's saying, through the grace given unto me, this is my calling. This is what God has given to me to do. And it's through that grace that I'm writing it. So I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now you'll notice that twice in that verse he uses the words every man. And what that means is that no one is overlooked in the distribution of gifts and graces to be used for God's glory. No one is overlooked. Every one of us in this room has been graced and gifted by God with something that we're to contribute. No one is absolved from the call of the Great Commission to go and make disciples. No one is ungifted or overlooked. All of us have something to contribute. Now, he exhorts in light of that, that we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but we're to think soberly. In other words, If something good comes out of our life, or if God uses our life because of the grace and the gift that he's given to us, we're not to take that as a sign that we're highly favored above someone else. We're not to become lifted up in pride and to think that because God is using my life in some way, or he's gifted me in some way, that that makes me special or elevated or better than anyone else. If I've done that, then I've taken the truth of what's going on and I've twisted it and made it something it's not. Jesus said that 
Even by himself, he could do nothing. But what he did, he did by the empowerment of the Father. Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And there's nothing good that will ever come out of any one of us apart from God. It's God that works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And thus we're not to think highly, but soberly. Now, human nature, this is just part of what we are, is that we have a tendency to deify man. We want to find someone who is more competent than we are, maybe more knowledgeable than we are, maybe you know, uh, more experienced than we are. And we want to put them up on a pedestal and kind of make that our example or our aim or our uh, mold. That if I could be like that person, then I would be doing okay. I like what they are. I feel like they're beyond where I am. And so I'm going to look at them and I'm going to use them as a pattern or a model of what I want to, what I want to be and what I want to do. Now, it's okay to have examples. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But the moment that we begin to think of a human being more highly than just a human being, then we're in error. Our eyes are supposed to be fixed upon Jesus. Now, just as much as it is human nature for us to deify someone who's beyond us, it is also a common trap and tendency for human beings to deify themselves in the sight of those that maybe are less than or weaker or not as advanced yet. Nobody's less than, but I think you understand. For man to deify himself. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. A passage where he's talking about this issue and this problem. Because in the city of Corinth, there was this whole man deification thing happening. Where all of the Christians there kind of had their, their pet pastors A lot of people had passed through Corinth. Corinth was kind of like one of the cultural hubs. It was a very opulent and and wealthy city. And so Paul was there for a while. Peter spent some time there. Apollos, who was a great speaker, spent time in Corinth. And what happened is that the Christians in Corinth all had their favorites. They would listen to the Christian radio station there. And they had their pastor trading cards, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they had stats on the back of it. Well, this one led 4,000 to Christ. And, and they would boast about the pastors and who they liked the best and who they thought was really the most anointed of God. And they had this whole thing where their eyes were on men and not upon God. And Paul addresses it in chapter 4. And I want you to just listen to what Paul says about this whole idea of men being highly esteemed or more highly esteemed than they should. He says, let a man so account of us or consider of us that we are the ministers of Christ and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, the most we should ever think about a human vessel, someone who serves in the name of Christ, is that they are a servant of Christ. Now, what's a servant? A slave. Now, many of you this morning, I think at least four, came in and you commented about the royal wedding. It might have even been more than that. And that's obviously the big thing in the news today is this royal wedding. But let me ask you a question. Can you give me the name of just one of the slaves? Just one of the servants of these royalties, whether it be the queen or the prince or some of his brothers and sisters or those that are... Just tell me the name of one of the servants or the slaves. You can't do it. Why? Because nobody cares. They're the ones with the big hats that you can barely see their face, that show no emotion at all, and they're there just to serve. They're support for those that are important. Now, who's the important in this? Jesus Christ, God the Father, his kingdom, his glory. That's who's important. He's the royalty. The men that teach, pastor, serve, 
prophesy. They're just the servants. That's what Paul said. So that's how we're to consider those that serve. Paul says, let a man so account of us as the servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Just the overseers. All we are is the accountants. It's not even our treasure. We just keep the books. I didn't write the Bible. I just teach it. It's God's word. It's God's power. Moreover, he says, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I don't even judge myself. In other words, Paul's mentality was, I don't listen to the criticism and I don't listen to the praise. Whether you judge me to be good or whether you judge me to be bad, I don't even judge myself. All I do is try to do the best I can with what I've been given. That's my mentality. He says, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. In other words, I, don't, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong or any reason why you should be critical of me. But he says, but that doesn't make me any better than anything else. God is my judge, and he'll judge me in right time. Therefore, Paul says to you and I, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, therefore, judge nothing before the time. That means don't say he's a good preacher. Because you don't know if he's a good preacher. He might be a slime ball. <laughs> don't say he's a bad preacher. Because you don't know. Maybe he well, in heaven is going to be extolled by God because he was faithful. Maybe not the most gifted. Don't judge anything before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. In other words, when we all stand before him and everything that's inside of us is manifested for everyone to see, then you'll see what was really going on in the life of all of God's servants and stewards. And then maybe you won't be as impressed with some that you were, and maybe you won't be so critical of some that you were. So don't judge anything before the time. And then he says this in verse 6. He says, In these things, brothers, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. Why? that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Well, I like Paul. I like Apollos. I like, you know, Charles Stanley. Well, I like Andy Stanley, you know, and he, he says, don't do that. And then he says to you and I concerning the gifts and graces that God has given to us, he says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think soberly. So what does it mean then to think soberly of ourselves? Here's what it is. It's not you. And it's not of you. God is going to gift you. God is going to use you. No one is excluded. God can do and will do powerful things through your life. But it's not you. It's God working in you and God working through you. And let me tell you a secret, guys. If you want God to stop using your life, if you want to be put on the shelf and you want your life to become impotent, I can tell you the fastest, easiest way to make that happen. Just start to take credit for the things that are happening through your life. And you'll see the power. You'll see the flow of God's grace. You'll see it stop very quickly in the effectiveness of things. It's God. It's not you. It's not us. So think soberly. I'm a slave. I'm a steward. That's all we are. Servants and stewards, accountants. It's God's treasure. It's God's glory. That's what it's for. So that's the preface and the precursor. And that's very important. It's a very important thing before we talk about all these gifts and the ways that God uses our lives, that that be 
the background and the framework in which all these things exist. It's not me. Now, when you watch Christian television, when you watch Christian celebrity things, you know what I mean? When you watch the, the, the peacock pony show of what the kingdom of God can be, they have forgotten this most important element of things. It's not about the vessel. It's about the contents. It's about what's inside. And the more invisible the vessel, the more pure the contents and untainted they are. And so he says, think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now he says in verse 4, he says, For as we have many members in one body, we are all one in Jesus Christ. He's the head, and we're all members of one another. But we're members, nevertheless. We're individuals, but we're one body. And he says that all members do not have the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, your body that you came in here with this morning has many body parts. You have hands, you have a tongue and a mouth and feet and you know organs that all do their things, glands and things that are on the outside, things that are in the inside. And those are all individual body parts that serve a function and a purpose. But yet, your body is one. It doesn't boast against the other parts, right? Do you ever have your hand go, you stupid foot, you're always in the shoe. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad I'm not you, you know? And you really smell. You know, I hear my hand like constantly cursing my foot, you know? Do you guys catch that? Um, I, I think it was like a few weeks ago, there was a, a reliever for one of the baseball teams and he, he blew, a, um, blew a lead and as he was called out of the game, he punched himself in the face. Did you, did you guys catch that? I mean, he really, like, gave himself a right hook. Like, it was something fierce, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, you know, you don't do that. You know what I mean? Unless you blow a save against the Yankees. You know, then maybe you do, but, <laughs> you know. But, 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 I mean, how absurd if our bodies went around fighting with, with the various parts of one another. And what Paul is saying here is that, listen, we're all individuals and each one of us is going to serve a different function and do something separate, but we're all one. And therefore, we're all beneficiaries and partakers of one another's gifts and graces. Therefore, we don't boast against one another and lift ourselves over and put down others, but rather we support and we build up one another. So that we can all be, be healthy and we can all be blessed and benefited by what one another bring to the table. So now he then goes on and he begins to talk about what these gifts are. And I'll just tell you something interesting and then I'm going to leave you hanging probably for something we'll talk about in our next study together. But this is the only passage in the New Testament that gives a complete list and description of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're new to the Bible or not familiar with the Bible, that statement, you have no problem with that. You're like, okay, good, noted. But if you are familiar with the Bible, you say, wait a minute. What about 1 Corinthians 12? What about 1 Corinthians 14? What do you mean this is the only place in the Bible where the gifts of the Spirit are listed and described completely? It's true. I'll leave that for now, <laughs> and we'll come back to it because it's important to bring those things in a little bit later on. But here, he's going to list off seven things, seven gifts to which all of us are partakers 
in some degree or proportion on things. And so he begins in verse 6. He says, having then, and that's each of us, gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. First of all, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or, secondarily, ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or, thirdly, he that teaches on teaching. Or, fourthly, he that exhorts on exhortation. Or, fifthly, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity. Sixthly, he that rules with diligence. And lastly, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. So seven gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians listed here in these verses. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhorting, giving, ruling, and mercy. Now, what are these gifts? What are these graces that are given to them? I'm going to separate them just a touch differently than Paul does. I'm going to put them out of order by one. I'm going to put uh, prophecy, teaching, and exhortation together. And then ministry, giving, governing, and mercy uh, after that. And the reason uh, being that the first three kind of uh, share something in common, you know, so we'll keep them somewhat together. But the first that he mentions there is this gift of prophecy. And, and, and what the gift of prophecy is in the context of, of this uh, passage and of the New Testament, it is the setting forth the revelation or the declaration of inspired truth. The revelation, the setting forth, the declaration of inspired truth to speak forth prophecy. It says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So those that testify or reveal concerning the things of Christ, the things of God, the things of the word, that's the spirit of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 says, He that prophesies or exercises the gift of prophecy, it says that they speak unto men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. So when you're moving in the gift of prophecy, you're speaking to men to edify them, that's to build them up. To exhort them, that's to stir them up, or comfort, that's to bind them up. So that's the spirit of, or the gift of prophecy. Now, it's different than the Old Testament prophet or prophecy in the context of the Old Testament. And the main reason for that is because, you know, in the Old Testament times, the Bible wasn't complete yet. And so when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, the things that they said were recorded as scripture. You know, and so we have those things in the Bible, but now the Bible is complete. It says in the book of Revelation that if anyone adds to the things that are written in this book, then the plagues that are in the book will be added to that person. God making it clear that the, the, the inspired body of revealed truth in the Bible is complete. And therefore, when someone prophesies in the New Testament context, their, their words are not on par with Scripture. It's different in that context, though there is a New Testament equivalent uh, of a prophet, but their words are not inspired in the same sense of Scripture. And so the gift of prophecy deals with the revelation of supernatural, invisible, and spiritual things, and it's making them known. We see Jesus using this constantly. When we look at the life of Christ, you see all of these uh, gifts illustrated because he was the only one that possessed all of these things in their full measure. 
And so Jesus would, would read a passage of scripture. He did it in Luke chapter 4. He found the place where it was written in the scroll of Isaiah, and he read the verses. And then he looked at the, the, the multitude that was there, folded up the scroll, and he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your sight. And he, that was an exercising of the gift of prophecy. It was taking revealed truth, and he was expounding on it in such a way as to make it relevant and applicable in the moment. And that's a great example of what the gift of prophecy is. It's revealing truth and making it alive. There are times when you hear a message given in a, a church service or any time. Even it could happen in a home Bible study. It could be just in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And someone is just sharing something, or maybe they share a scripture with you or a verse, or they apply a, a, or expound a passage of scripture in a certain way. And when they do it, what's happening between you and the speaker and God is way beyond just an intellectual transfer of information. But there's almost a communion that's happening between you and the Father and what's going on in the moment. And there's something that's being imparted or revealed or spoken on a depth that cannot be described in human words. Or there's something that's being communicated that's so supernatural in its origin and its substance that no one else can know, even in the room, what's, what's being spoken to you or what's going on or what God is doing. That's a prophetic word that you're hearing. And the person that is speaking that forward to you, in whatever the context is, is, is exercising the gift of prophecy. It's not from them, it's from God. But I hope all of us know exactly what I'm talking about when I say those things. Because that's supposed to be happening on a constant basis. You know, as we uh, interact with one another, as we sit in our churches and our Bible studies, you know, there ought to be this prophetic impartation of spiritual things. It's not hocus pocus. It's not like this esoteric, weird thing. It's just the supernaturally natural communion between heaven and earth. It's the gift of prophecy. We see it happening on the road to Emmaus. Remember when Jesus was expounding the scriptures, the things concerning himself, and, and they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he expounded to us the word? That testimony that their hearts burned within them, they were confessing or, or testifying to the fact that they had been in the presence of someone who was exercising this gift of prophecy, the prophet, making, making the, the truth live. Uh, we see it also in New Testament context in Acts chapter 21. There was a prophet, New Testament, whose name was Agabus. And he took Paul's belt and he kind of tied himself up and he said, thus says the Lord. He says, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt if he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul took his belt back and said, why are you trying to scare me? I don't care. You know, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem anyways. But the word of the prophet came to pass, and it's recorded in the Bible. And so there is a place in the New Testament for someone to say, thus says the Lord, this is going to happen, and it can happen. Now, that doesn't make it scripture or, or worthy of being recorded as scripture, but it can still happen. God still does those things. And so the gift of prophecy, it has different manifestations, but it is listed first among the gifts, and that's what it is. Secondarily, the, he mentions the gift of teaching there. Not just him that prophesies, but second, him that teaches. The gift of teaching is the explaining, the expounding, and the depicting of inspired truth. The explaining, expounding, and depicting of inspired truth. Now, teaching differs from prophecy in that teaching tends to be less spiritual and more technical. 
In other words, it's not so much an exercise of the heart, but more an exercise of the head or of the mind. It's taking the words and explaining their meaning. It's taking a passage apart and outlining it and, and then putting it back together again and making it clear so that the context is understood in the light of the content. And all of those things are put forward in a way where they're understood and communicated and known. It's the impartation of knowledge. And so it tends to be less spiritual and a little bit more technical. We see Jesus doing this all the time. Jesus explaining scripture. Jesus illustrating spiritual things using parables, right? Stories that kind of lay alongside of a truth that help understand and give light to its meaning. We see Jesus applying then those things and saying, therefore, and then giving instruction concerning it. And so Jesus often taking the place of a teacher in his earthly ministry. I'm amazed as I look at the Bible at how highly God values the office of a teacher. I say that partially because I am one. <laughs> But, but God does hold the place of a teacher very highly. Not, not, I wouldn't say higher than others, but he does hold it very highly. And the reason for that is because the teacher uh, is responsible for feeding um, God's, God's sheep, God's people. What did Jesus say to Peter? He, he said when Peter, he said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And what did Jesus say? He said, then feed my sheep. That's important to the Lord. The teacher oftentimes is the one who equips the one who equips God's saints, God's church, with the knowledge that they need and the understanding that they need in order to walk the walk, live the life, and also serve the service that they're called to serve. And so the teacher very valuable to equip the saints. The teacher often also builds up. I mean, in edifying and feeding, you're building up, you're adding to, you're nourishing, and you're growing God's people. And the teacher oftentimes is one of the primary protectors of God's people. Remember when I began this morning in John 17, and, and Jesus talked about preserving or keeping us from the evil? How did he say it was done? Through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so as the word of God is taught to you and I, it helps us to be protected from deception. It helps us to be protected even from sin, from temptation, from things that are going to um, rob us or kill us or destroy us. And so the office of a teacher is extremely important in the body of Christ, in the church of God, because of those reasons. We read in the Old Testament of many times when the children of Israel would flounder and, and kind of go off the rails, God would say, because there was no teaching priest. In, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3, the people went astray again there because there was no teaching priest. In other words, there was no one that could take the word of God, explain it to the people in such a way that they were able to live it out. The Apostle Paul demonstrates the ministry of teaching in Acts chapter 20. He testifies to the church in Ephesus and he says that I was with you for the space of three years teaching and showing you publicly and, and from house to house how to live this life. And so Paul operating in that, uh, just an important thing in the body of Christ. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 5, and it's verses 11 through 14. And it's a challenging passage for me. It says, um, I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but he says to, to you and I, and it's kind of a piercing um, a piercing word, but he says that when for the time um, that you ought to be teachers, you should be teachers, he says to them, 
You have need that one teach you again the things which be the first principles of the truths of God. And you've become such that have need of milk and not of strong meat. In other words, you've become so untaught, the author says, that, that you need to start over at the very beginning. And here's the consequence of that. He says, for everyone that uses milk, milk being a, a, um, a, a, a comparison for weakness and, and small things, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a baby. But strong meat, that means solid teaching, good exposition, explanation, illustration, application, strong meat, belongs to them that are of full age, meaning mature, strong, rooted, even those, listen, and here's why it's important, who by reason of use, using these truths in your life, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Meaning the person that's well taught in the word of God and knows how to use it in their life is going to see life through the framework of the scripture and they're going to discern very quickly what's going on around them. They're going to see something on TV and they're going to say, that is harmful to me. That's dangerous. I need to turn this off right now. They're going to hear something on the radio, a song, and they'll say, I know right where that's coming from, what motivated the songwriter to write the song. They're going to understand it, not just in its words and the simplicity of it, but in the depths of where it came from. You begin to discern. When you see a person and you hear the things that they're saying, you're able to judge righteous judgment, not the world's judgment that just judges on outward things. But through the lens of the word of God, their senses are exercised to discern good and evil. And so the teaching ministry is so very important and vital in the body of Christ. And that's why we place such a great emphasis on it in our church. It's why we teach the Bible the way that we do. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. Because it equips, it feeds, it builds up, it does so much. Number three, and I'm skipping over ministry, but I'll come right back to it next, uh, is the gift of exhortation. Paul says, he that exhorts, wait on his exhortation. The gift of exhortation is the impacting and inspiring of action by truth. The impacting and inspiring action of action by the truth. In other words, it's motivating people to do the things that they're supposed to do using the truth of God to do it. We would call this person primarily the preacher. If the teacher is the teacher, the exhorter is the preacher. The one who, with their words, can stir up something inside of you that motivates you to want to go out and walk the walk or live the life. That's the person who has the gift of exhortation. It's the gifted orator, the gifted speaker, the person who has command over words and can connect and move a person through the things that they say. The one who's able to stir up and motivate or encourage. Again, we see this often in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's why they wanted to kill him, <laughs> right? Because when he spoke, people were moved. I think it was in John chapter 6. Um, there were some of the Pharisees that got into an argument about whether or not Jesus were, were false or whether he were true. And some of the Pharisees were moved by Jesus and, and were making kind of a defense of him. You know, they said, do we judge anyone before we hear them out thoroughly? And, and some of the other Pharisees, what, are you going to follow him too? What, are you a defector? Are you going after this man? And the defense that they gave is they said, look, no, I'm not saying that. They said this, but no one's ever spoken like this man has. 
<laughs> there is something about the way this man speaks that when he speaks, it moves something on the inside. And that's, that's someone who has a gift of exhortation. And we see it in the life of Jesus. Why were there thousands and thousands of people that were surrounding him constantly, even if he tried to get away to the other side? Because there was something about the way he spoke that went way beyond just the impartation of, 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 uh, of language or knowledge. Anyone can do that. I mean, we've had orators throughout human history, but no one has ever affected people like Jesus Christ. It was the gift of exhortation. We read of Apollos in the book of Acts. And Apollos was a gifted orator. He was an exhorter. And that's why people liked him so much. He, he was a little bit weak when it came to truth, but he could speak and he could move an audience. And that's someone that has a gift of exhortation. The fourth gift that's mentioned there, uh, it's actually the third, but I'm listing it fourth, is the gift of ministry. The, the word ministry is the word in the Greek. It's diakonos. It's where we get the English word deacon. And what it literally means is someone who serves. It's someone who facilitates and enables truth. This is a gift that operates largely behind the scenes, whereas the first three, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, those are three kind of, you know, front-forward gifts, people that speak, people that share, people that teach, communicate. The deacon or the servant, not so much. This is a person who's maybe quieter. They are not comfortable speaking or with people or maybe with crowds or with all those kind of things, but they have a heart nevertheless for God, and it's manifested in the way that they get their hands in things and they want to serve. And the body of Christ needs people like this. I mean, we see, we see it constantly uh, throughout the Gospels, throughout the Bible. We read in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, that there was uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and it says, and many others which ministered to him of their substance. In other words, there was a whole group in the ministry of Jesus that were behind the scenes, that were serving, that were preparing, that were doing, that we never read about. We don't know what they did or how they did it, but if they weren't there, then Jesus wouldn't have been able to do spiritually the things that he was doing and so the practical was equally essential with the spiritual in order for the spiritual to have traction and gain ground and so it's important we see jesus sending out 70 into every city where it says that he himself would go why what was the purpose of that because there were arrangements that needed to be made i mean if jesus was going to come into the city then it needed to be known by the people that were there that, that he was going to be coming. And thus there was legwork that needed to be done in order to pave the way for Jesus to go into those towns and villages. When Jesus was going to have the Last Supper with his disciples, he sent a few of them ahead to make all things ready. They wouldn't have been able to have the Last Supper unless all the Passover had been prepared. Someone had to set that up. And that's the servant. That's the person with the gift of, of service. Uh, that does those things. We read in Acts chapter 7, it was a very critical moment in the life of the early church. 5,000, 6,000 people had come to know Jesus Christ in those first months of it. And there was a lot happening all at once. And there was a great under, under um, they were under sh short servants. <laughs> great. <laughs> they didn't have enough people. <laughs> they needed oopaloopas, you know. <laughs> And an argument arose between the, the Grecian Jews and the Hellenist Jews because the, the Grecian Jews felt like they were being um, neglected and not given the, the same share of food as some of the others. And so they started to fight. 
And the apostles got pulled into the dispute and they found themselves, instead of teaching the word of God, serving tables, dividing food and administrating over budgets and things. And Peter stood up and he gathered the whole church together, thousands of people, and he said, listen, it is not a good reason for us apostles to leave the ministry of the word of God in prayer in order to serve these tables. And he says, find seven men among you of honest report, full of faith and full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit that we can appoint over this business. Those were the first deacons, the first servants in the early church. And so they chose seven Greeks. Good choice when the Greeks were the ones with the gripe, you know, choose Greeks to solve the problem, you know. And so they did that. And these were servants, deacons, those that served tables behind the scenes. And then we see that today. We see those that facilitate and enable kingdom business. I remember um, one thing that, that just helped me greatly in my early days as a Christian. Um, I was kind of in, in the beginnings of being trained up and raised up in the ministry. And I was in this role of a deacon in my church uh, outside of Rochester. And so my job was facilities, uh, you know, cleaning the church, cleaning the bathrooms after the service, um, just behind the scenes and visible, quiet service, you know. And I remember um, there was an occasion where the pastor's mother came to stay with him for about a month. And after um, about three weeks, I was up in the front of the church, and she was sitting there. She always sat right in the front, and she was extremely elderly, elderly didn't move around that much. And she, uh, she, she stopped me. She says, excuse me, young man. She said, who, um, who cleans up around here? And, and I was kind of like, kind of, <laughs> I was kind of like, wow, I'm about to get a compliment about how. <laughs> and, and, and I said, well, I'm one of the people that clean up around here, you know. And she said, well, it's funny you should say. She said, there's a Dixie cup that's been up on that stage for three weeks. And it's awfully distracting. <laughs> I thought, oh, uh, let me get that, you know. And <laughs> it just knocked down a few notches. But what I took away from that is that a Dixie cup can distract someone from hearing the word of God. And therefore, the clearing of a Dixie cup is equally as important as the person who's standing behind the pulpit and heralding the message. Because if the Dixie cup isn't removed and someone is caught staring at that saying, that's been there for an awfully long time, they're not listening to the messages being spoken. And therefore, that ministry of service is vital, vital in the imparting of truth to a hearer. It's equally as important. The fifth one is the gift of giving. The gift of giving is providing for and bring, brining. It's not bringing, brining for truth. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. Providing for and brining for truth. It's those that support, those that give of their resources, of their talent, of their time, those that are liberal in giving. And of course, we see this uh, illustrated again in the New Testament, a young boy who saw the need and was willing to give up his entire lunch, even though it was a drop in the bucket, according to the need. He just was compelled to give. We see it in the early church in Acts chapter 2, when it says that people were just selling everything and giving the money. They, they were so filled with love and so motivated to just pour in their entire lives that they were just liquidating everything and just giving it to, to, to whoever would have need. You know, it's this gift of giving. And there are people that are gifted in this way by God where they're just compelled to give. My wife has this gift. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> 
she doesn't listen to this. You know, Rocky might blow up, blow my cover on it, but she, you know, I don't have that gift. Can you tell? You know, <laughs> I guess I do in my own way, but not the way she does. You know, in the whole thing. But the giver is a person who supports the work, and that's important. You know, that 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 the work of God be supported because God doesn't beg and He doesn't need. But practical things need to be provided for. And so God has provided givers in the body of Christ that give. When I gave the definition, I said providing for truth, but also brining for truth. Sometimes givers have a way of impressing people to, to, to soften up enough to listen. When, when, you know, my wife does this thing when she makes certain meats that she brines them. She'll make the salt water, throw some spices in it, and she'll just throw a whole chicken in it and let it sit for a couple days. And what it does is it tenderizes the meat and, and allows it to absorb flavor so that it's tender and soft. And the common condition of a human heart is to be hardened towards the gospel and the things of God. And sometimes a person with the gift of giving has, a, has an amazing power to brine a hardened heart. Because when they give so liberally and so freely, it causes a person to look in and say, why is that person so free in the way that they give and the way that they provide? And it opens them up maybe to hear the message and come to Christ. So the gift of giving is important on on many levels. God uses it. Sixthly, don't worry, we're we're not going to finish this whole topic this morning. I planned it to be two weeks. So we're almost finished. But uh, sixthly is the gift of governing or the gift of ruling or the gift of administrating. Um, and what that is, is the engineering and the administrating for the sake of truth. It's those that have organizational and leadership skills. Again, we see it in the life of Christ. Remember when, um, after the little boy gave his loaves and fishes, Jesus said to his apostles, he said, listen, divide the people into companies of 50 Seat them down in sections of of 50s and divide them. And then he he blessed, he broke, and then he divided. He gave it to the apostles. They gave it to the multitudes. All the people were fed. And then at the end, he said, now go and pick up all the scraps that were remaining. And he took an accounting of how much was left over. That's a gift of leadership. That's a gift of governing. It's a gift of delegation. It's, It's all of those things. We see Jesus sending out the 70 in groups of two ahead of him in all the places that he would go. It's a gift of leadership. It's governing. It's organizing. We see the apostles appointing those deacons in Acts chapter 7. That's a gift of leadership. It's administration. It's organizing. And there are people in the body of Christ today that have this gift. They're organizers. They're leaders. They know how to run a church or a ministry. They understand the practical things that go into it and that have to be taken care of behind the scenes and uh, in order to keep things going and keep things functioning. And we see that it's of the Lord. And when you have 5,000 people in in the first church in the book of Acts, you got to organize that a little bit, (laughs) you know? And the same thing is true today. And so uh, organizers, administrators are important in the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And then finally, number seven, um, is the gift of mercy, those that have a gift of mercy. Again, this is another one that my wife is very strong in, um, and it's someone who has the ability to soften or heal uh, in the truth or for the truth's sake. Uh, a person with a gift of mercy has an amazing ability to see past the sin of a sinner and see the person that's, that's underneath, that they can overlook a, a person's filth Uh, and love them through that enough to see them come to Christ and have that sin dealt with properly and put away uh, at the cross. It also um, gives someone the ability to heal, 
to bring healing to someone who's been um, damaged or, or maybe even a Christian who's fallen in sin and that needs to be restored. It's someone with the gift of mercy that will come alongside and be able to lift that person up. We see Jesus uh, in the temple and a woman was brought, remember, who was caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, she was guilty. They had proof. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't have proof. She didn't even have clothes on. You know, it was, she was guilty. And the law said that she should be stoned. But Jesus began to look at the accusers and dismiss them one by one. And then he was gracious and he dealt mercifully with the woman and he set her free, not just from her sin, but from the condemnation that her sin brought. We see Jesus with the woman at the well who had five husbands. He didn't condemn her for having five husbands. He forgave her and he gave her a way out of that life. That's the gift of mercy. And someone with the gift of mercy has the ability to do that uh, on things. Sometimes the truth has a way of hurting people. You guys ever heard that phrase, the truth hurts? You know? And, and, and I don't know if you've ever, have you ever left a, a church service or maybe just a one-on-one -on -one encounter with someone and the truth hurt you pretty bad? And, 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 <laughs> and the truth was right and you're wrong and you're bleeding and you're kind of standing there in a puddle of condemnation. You know, thinking like, can I ever be loved by God again? Have I blown it? You know, the whole thing. Someone with the gift of mercy is incredibly powerful in a situation like that uh, when you need it. And I think of, remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples thought they were going to save his life? And Peter drew his sword, remember? And he cut off Malchus' ear, the, the servant of the high priest. And what did Jesus say? He said, Peter, put, please put the sword away. And then he took and he went and he grabbed that young man's ear and he put it on. I mean, this was his adversary, right? He put it back on. You know, and, 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 and that's necessary. Sometimes the truth can be so sharp, the two-edged sword, right? And it can just slice off someone's ear. But someone with the gift of mercy is so important to be able to put that back on, put the ear back on. You know, someone will hear again, you know, and not just be cut off uh, because of it. And so these seven offices or seven gifts that are listed here, um, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, ministry, giving, ruling, and mercy. Now, every office, every one of these gifts has an inherent weakness. Every one of these has a weakness, a corresponding weakness that goes along with it. The prophet, the person with the gift of prophecy, though they're strong in spirit, they often lack the practical. They're the ones that we would say, we'd call them a space case or a kook, <laughs> right, or a nut job, because sometimes they seem so heavenly minded that you wish they'd come back down to earth, you know, that they lack a practicalness, and, and they're easy, a prophet is easy to counterfeit, because you just got to act weird, and you can pretend yourself to be a prophet, and you can use this gift to deceive people, because people are intrigued with the, the, the strange things, and so there's a weakness there. The weakness of a teacher is that though they're strong in the practical, often a teacher will lack application. You'll get lost in the technicalities. And so they'll give you the concepts and you'll understand it, but you'll say, how in the world does this work out in real life? You know, and that's the weakness of a teacher. I get it, but what do I do with it? That's where the exhorter comes in. The exhorter is strong in application, strong in action. I mean, you want to go out. You're ready to fight. You don't even know why, <laughs> you know, but you want to go. But often an exhorter's weakness is that they're weak in doctrine. We see this with Apollos. He was an exhorter, but yet he had to be taken aside and taught more accurately because he didn't have all of his facts straight. 
And sometimes an exhorter can be so gung-ho about get out there and do it that they kind of get the facts of what and why and how mixed up along the way. It's their weakness. A deacon, though they're active to serve and often energetic, the weakness of a servant, a deacon, is that they don't like to sit and learn. They often have trouble just sitting in, taking in a Bible study. They don't see the point of just, they, let's do something. Why are we just sitting here hearing about it? Let's get out and do it. It's called Martha syndrome. Remember Martha? She was agitated that Mary was just sitting and listening to the word. She was busy. She wanted to work. She wanted to serve. The person with the gift of giving is often weak in practicality. <laughs> They'll give away everything. They're the administrator's nightmare, <laughs> right? Because what are you, crazy? We can't afford to do this. Like, you're out of your mind. No, we must. We must do it. You know, but they're weak in practicality. A person with a gift of administration, though they're often brilliant, and that's their strength, they often lack greatly in the spiritual administrators and pastors often butt heads. It happens often because the administrator is trying to keep the practical train moving down the tracks and the pastor is often trying to give the train wings so it can take off. And oftentimes God makes the train fly and the administrator doesn't get it. And it's just a funny thing, but they have a hard time and often an administrator can lack faith. A person with a gift of mercy their weakness is that they'll often discard truth for the sake of grace, and they don't like confrontation. And so a person with a gift of mercy will often compromise something that God wouldn't compromise for the sake of being merciful. And there's a place for that sometimes, but it's their weakness. And what's the point of sharing the weaknesses and all these things? Here's what it is. It's that every single one of these gifts and offices is vital in the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ cannot go without even one of these, not one. There is not one of these that's more important than another or that can be sacrificed or put on the back burner. A healthy church, a healthy kingdom is going to have all seven of these things in full operation. And God provides people with each of these gifts in order to fulfill it. And so the question is, what's my gift? How do I determine what I am, what God calls me to be, and where I'm to, to go on things? We'll talk about it next time.